Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bosted. We are coming to you live from Symphony Space in Manhattan. And uh, for those of you for whom this might be your first time at a Relevant Tones show, well, Relevant Tones is a podcast about the most fascinating time in classical music history. Pause right now. Um, and uh, what we mean by that is, as, as wonderful as the music from the past is, what's happening in the present, I think, is, is significantly more interesting because instead of music from a, a handful of, or composers from a handful of countries, most of whom were, were white men, we're having music from an incredible variety of different composers. And so Relevant Tones celebrates the diverse tradition that is uh, contemporary classical music. And in these live shows, uh, what we like to do is have a theme and present music relating to the theme, and of course have conversation as well. So what we opened up the program with is a piece by Jacob TV called Nivea Hair Care Styling Moose. <laughs> um, and we're gonna return to that piece, it's a five movement work. So that was the first movement, Nivea, and um, I wanna introduce our band too, although, um, Jonah, come back out. So Jonah Wu on violin. Woohoo! all right. Eva Cassian-Lacos on cello. And Blair McMillan on piano. So they will be here all night uh, playing the music, all of which relates to our theme for tonight, which is commercialism in art. And somebody asked me out in the lobby, so is, is commercialism a bad thing? Uh, no, we're not gonna hear to talk about that. That's just the theme. So we're gonna talk with our panel here about the various and sundry ways that art and commerce intersect, and we're going to intersperse that with uh, music. So let's meet our panelists. Um, first up, we have Doug Cuomo, who, uh, Doug's Jay Cuomo professionally, I know him as Doug. <laughs> and we've known each other for about 10 years, and um, Doug on the uh, artistic side has done everything from, I mean, you know, Savage Winter is this incredible piece that's rethinking the poems that inspired Schubert's Winterreise cycle, if you know that um, cycle, uh, that was at BAM and, and is having a, a wonderful life. Uh, you did the opera adaptation of Doubt, which is uh, pretty amazing. Um, well, we first met because of Arjuna's Dilemma, uh, which is uh, you know an operatic or, or kind of a, what you call it, a dramatic stage work inspired by the Bhagavad Gita. Um, but on the commercial side, you, you wrote the theme for Sex in the City. You've worked with um, Homicide, Life on the Streets, uh, Bill Moyer, I mean, incredible career. So uh, both sides of the divide there um, with, with Doug. Thank you so much for being here. And we have Juliet Ellis, who is a film director, actor, performance artist, and theater maker, who has worked continuously as an interdisciplinary artist to produce a number of award-winning works. And her work has toured extensively. Her films have been screened at international film festivals in London, Oppenhausen, South Africa, and the US, among others. She's been commissioned by the BFI, UK Film Council, B3 Media Blank Slate, Creative England, and so many more, and we're really, really happy to have her here. Julie, thank you so much for being part of this. Um, I've heard that it's expensive to make films. I don't know if that's true, but... Uh. <laughs> well, it depends what kind of films, you know. <laughs> you can make a film for zero budget, or you can make one for 200, 300 million, so yes. Well, expensive on the whole. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Todd Liffey is our co-producer of the Relevant Tones live series. Um, and he's a man of many, many talents. He is a musician, a filmmaker, a writer, an art curator. Uh, I don't know what you, it's almost easier to list the things you haven't done, you know, in some respects. Um, and uh, Todd is the creator of Esopus Magazine, which is just a, a beautiful magazine. I want to read this quote because I think it's really great. The New York Times' David Carr described Esopus Magazine as a thing of lavish, eccentric beauty, less flipped through than stared at. Uh, I, I mean, I like to read it too, but I don't just stare at it, you know. But, <laughs> but I love that quote. I, I think it's really fantastic. Um, and I'm Seth Bosted. I'm a composer and uh, the creator of uh, Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization that produces the Relevant Tones podcast, among many, many other things. 
And um, I make no money from my music whatsoever. Uh, I'm happy to say, I'm sad to say. <laughs> and I'm here, boom, all right. Let's get this party started. <laughs> um, I wanna read this quote from Jacob TV about the, the piece Nivea Hair Care Styling Moose because um, I, I think these are like kind of the funniest program notes I, I've ever read. He says, Nivea Hair Care Styling Mousse was composed for the Storioni Trio during the summer of 99. Um, and uh, at, at the time that I wrote the piece, I discovered that two members of the trio and I happened to use the same product to shape our hair. <laughs> you guessed it. It was Nivea Hair Care Styling Mousse. Now, you may think that the piano trio was sponsored by the company Nivea, but it's the other way around. Artists sponsor a multinational. Um, so I, I find that very amusing in many respects. And you know, as, as Eva, our cellist was saying backstage earlier, not all art has to be so weighty. You know, sometimes it can just be fun and everything. But um, let's start with, with this idea of writing a piece inspired by a mass market product. Todd, how, react to that a little bit. Well, the, I think what was playing as everybody was coming in earlier was a CD we did. We did a CD in every issue of Sophos, and it was called Product Displacement. The idea was to ask musicians to pick a jingle or an ad slogan or a anything that would relate to a particular ad and try to bury it in a song so you couldn't identify it. And the idea was that artists are often often make a living. You know, musicians get a break and get their song on a commercial, a Volvo commercial, and it can literally you know help them survive for a year. It's very very remunerative. Uh, so I think it's. Um, you know, I think it's very common for artists to have to kind of work on this divide between what can I, what am I comfortable doing, what's going to allow me to continue to make art, and what, what's what's the line that I don't want to cross that could actually, we were talking about this backstage, not only affect my ability to make art, but even affect my credibility <clears throat> in a particular whatever discipline I'm in. If you know, there are lines you don't want to cross because you may be judged you know, perhaps rightly for crossing those lines. So I mean, that's definitely something question. the original um, marketing materials for this show, I, I was talking about what does it mean to sell out? And then actually, like, as I was thinking about that, because I, you know, it's, it's impossible for me to sell out because I never sold in. But um, I, I was thinking, you know, um, we, we went to see my wife and I went to see Nathan Hill, who the author of the book, The Knicks, if you know that book, a really wonderful book, and he has a new book out. And he was talking about teaching young people. And, you know, he had gone to he was talking about having gone to, a, a, a you know, uh, Eddie Vedder's band. What's that band called? Um, having gone to that Pearl Jam. Thank you. Pearl Jam concert, <laughs> like in the 90s. And Eddie Vedder is like saying, you know, you all are going to go home to Thanksgiving soon and spend that time with your families. And everybody's like booing and booing and booing. And he's going, boo, boo, boo. And he's like, but actually, I love Thanksgiving. You know, like, why am I going along with this idea that, you know, a mass market holiday is so bad? And, you know, he was saying that, like, young people, a lot of younger people have no concept of selling out at all. They're like, well, I'm, I want to be an influencer. I want right. to totally sell in, right. <laughs> you know? Right. So I think that concept might be going away. I mean, Doug, you look like you want to react to that. Yeah, I feel like over the course of my professional life that that's changed a lot. Um, in terms of how people judge. Like, I don't think people, particularly younger people, um, I don't think they judge you poorly for being commercial. When I first, I mean, my, in some ways what I did was sort of related to what was, they were talking about before about this kind of balance between commercial and non-commercial stuff. And at first I was doing art that was mostly non-commercial and not making really any money at all. Um, and then I kind of fell into doing commercial stuff really through this sort of accidental thing. And suddenly I was making a 
like pretty good money. Um, and at that time, I was literally a year behind on my rent because my building was on rent strike and you're supposed to be like putting it in. We weren't putting it in. Um, I, you know, I don't know what the plan, there was no particular plan for what was going to happen. We had to come up with it. But, um, and then I did, because at that time, I just wanted to make a living through music in some way. Um, but I was doing a lot of downtown theater and things like that and some little bit of other kind of theater stuff and documentaries. But then I got some t a TV show that, was a, that paid really well and lasted for seven years. And then I got some other stuff. And I was doing really pretty much just that kind of work, really, really totally commercial work for about 15 years. And I didn't really like it very much, but I felt like I was kind of, I was making my living doing that. And it was pretty all consuming for me in terms of where my musical energies were going. Um, and when I was able to stop doing it because actually because of Sex in the City, because the, the residuals for that were, were nice and long-lasting. Um, I just stopped entirely. And I remember when I got the first residual check that indicated to me that I was could stop, the first thing I thought of, like, oh, my God, should I quit this job? I'm right in the middle of now. <laughs> hmm. Because I knew that I was immediately, I was, you know, so, you know, essentially artistically and even psychologically unhappy being in that more commercial world. Um, and then when I, so then I started to do, you know, more of my own kind of work. And at that time I was more, I was concerned about the fact that I didn't have this background in sort of serious composing and how would that be judged? And, uh, and for a while, I think there was a bit of a stigma, but then I think not, it sort of went away. And then away people think it's like kind of cool now hmm. somehow. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, I'm very jealous of people, you know, composers in their 20s and 30s because I feel like they're not dealing with any of this, you know, uh, we call them the style wars or, you know, just this this kind of harsh attitude towards, you know, you should be writing music that's completely inaccessible, as complex as possible, and, you know, that drove musicians crazy. There's no ROI on it for them. They, they spend years learning these incredibly difficult pieces that no audience wants to hear, you know, and it's just like, why are we doing this? It's a self-perpetuating nonsense. Does any of this resonate in the film world for, for you, Julie, or, or in your world? Yeah, I was just thinking about when... Uh many, many moons ago when I uh, was going to drama school and um, like figuring out what kind of actor that I was going to be, like what uh, interests me. And I remember, um, you you know, we have the showcase at the end of the three years and then the, all the agents come and then they pick you. And so I was one of the few that got an agent. And it was really interesting because I decided really early on that I wasn't interested in uh, like the commercial route. So one of the first things I said to my agent is I'm not going to do any commercials. Mm. And they were like, what? <coughs> You've just come out of drama school. And um, I was like, well, I'm not because I don't drink. I don't eat meat. You know, there's a lot of things that I don't do, but I'm kind of cool. Um, <laughs> that doesn't always equal boring. And um, and I, I did one commercial in all of my, and that was for Volkswagen, because my brother had the car and he said it was really cool. So I said, okay, <laughs> I'll, do, I'll do that one. But um, I, I was just thinking as you were talking, Doug, that 
to me, it's kind of like, I don't see it as an entity, like commercialism as, a, as an entity. I see it as a life choices. It's like a holistic thing. You know, I come from a very um, uh, intense socialist, I know it's a bad word in America, sorry, socialist city in England and very working class. You know, we, it's a community, you know, there were, where there were all the miners strike and the labor strikes. And, you know, that's the way I was brought up. And so for me, it was a decision about how do I want to create work? How do I want to not just create work, but how do I want to live my life? And like, even where do I want to spend my money? And I've always been drawn to like independent shops, like, you know, um, community, you know, creating a community, creating. So I think, um, and that stayed with me. I did very few, and then I, you know, TV, I did a film and TV programs, but I was very bored after a while in telling other people's stories that I thought weren't that interesting. I didn't think they were gonna contribute anything. I didn't think they were gonna move anybody's mind. So that was like over quite quickly. And that's when I started to think I want to create my own uh, work and create a voice for very underrepresented um, section of society, which is a black, you know, female working class voice in the north of England. Yeah, that's great. I want to I put a pin in that idea of um, what, what, what you contribute as an artist versus what, what, um, well, what you're contributing you know, when, when, you're, when you're making money. I, th I think that's a very interesting kind of distinction. And, and Doug, speaking of which, the piece that we're going to play now, um, A Far Playground, you described that to me as the first piece you wrote when you were transitioning away from commercial work. Is that, is that fair to say? <clears throat> no. Sorry, if, if I said if I, I said that that's wrong. if I said that that's not true, I'm sorry. Actually, Arjuna's dilemma was believe it or not, um, but uh, yeah. So no, the answer is no to that. Sorry. So whatever else cool you thing you're going to say right. about. It. So you know, this really brings us to the next piece that we're going to play, <laughs> a far <laughs> playground. <laughs> Tell us about it. Um, this uh, piece was actually inspired by a dream that my son had. Um, my son Eli. Who happens to be here, um, i.e., uh, when he was three or four or something. And he said he dreamed of a playground that was far away, and he was there all by himself, and everything was kind of cool for a while, but then a wolf came and was, like, around. So from based on that, um, I wrote this uh, piece, piece for cello and piano.
right, that's The Far Playground by Douglas J. Cuomo. Not the first piece he wrote, transitioning <laughs> away from commercial work and, and thinking about uh, expressing himself artistically. That was Arjuna's Dilemma, which is, which yeah. is appropriate because that's, how, um, that's the first thing of yours that I heard. Uh, we met at a Chamber Music America conference, which, you know, you're, you're standing at a conference, and you're just talking around, and somebody comes over and, and starts talking to you, and then 10 years later, <laughs> you're still hanging out with them. That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, I want to, um, yeah, I, I think that, that uh, I mean, that piece is obviously very personal. Um, so I want to go back to, to um, what Julie was talking about, which is this idea that, you know, when you're, when you're doing commercial work, and, and I've done a lot of film scores and things, and I find it fascinating when my music is serving something else, and, I, and my, my role is to support that and be part of it. But when I'm writing concert music, I can do whatever I want. And then once the piece is finished, I want people to hear it. So now I've got to try to box it up and, and get it out to people in a way, you know, instead of just saying, like, I'm great and you should listen to me, which doesn't usually work, I've, I've found. I don't know. I have a lot of Facebook posts that go nowhere <laughs> with those exact words, you know. But if you can say this piece relates to, you know, something human. So I, I want to react to that a little bit, this idea that, that um, moving away from serving something else and just expressing yourself and what that means. Um, let's start with Julie, if you don't mind, because I want to you're the one who brought it up. Yeah. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I was just thinking, so, um, you know, I wanted to, you know, because you, like, you're going through, you're living your life, you're going through a process, certain big questions arise in your mind or appear in your mind. You have questions about the world, life, people, whatever. And um, you want to explore some of those questions, maybe explore some of what the possibilities of those answers could be and like like when I made my first feature film Ruby and it was all about um, death but nothing happened it was just a young girl who stayed with a dead dead body in the house because one of my things is we 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 want to move away death from our life like if we saw someone we just like we would just want to hide it away and I wanted death to be right there in the film, all <clears throat> throughout the whole film. And so, you know, I had some meeting with some funders and things, and they said, oh, okay. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They were like, the checkbooks aren't exactly coming out, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> they, it has no commercial value. So I was like, wow. And, and the thing is, as, as, as a person, you know, who's black and a woman, that has, it resonates very deeply because like having a, uh, like saying to someone that you've got no commercial value, it's like, oh, you have no voice in which anybody wants to hear. And so that was very deep for me. And so I decided to, um, because as a person you have to go, do, do those questions go unanswered? All those things, these themes that appear to me, do they go unanswered or do I find a way of trying to pivot and explore that? So I created this T-shirt and um, I happened to know someone who owned those electric, electronic billboards. So I plastered myself all over Sheffield in the billboard with a T-shirt and then I asked everybody who I knew who was like independent to wear the T-shirt. So there was like a, Doug being one of them, Sharon his lovely wife being another one. Um, and uh, they wore the T-shirts and they were all over. Then I got, you know, I was in the uh, newspapers and everything. And it 
got back to the funding organisers and they were so angry. And I was thinking, what is the investment for you? Why are you so angry? Mm. Well, like, that said something to me. It said that my instincts were, were working when you said that I had no commercial value. You meant that I had a voice that nobody wanted to listen to. And so I made sure, you know, that I was heard. And, uh, you know, I made the film. It did very well on the uh, art house circuit because it, it was art house in its nature. People uh, were willing to come on board. I made sure everybody was paid minimum wage. And um, because everybody had a passion, in, especially in Sheffield, in England in general, they love an underdog. Mm. They, they love an underdog. And so everybody collaborated in this beautiful um, movement. And so, and so for me now, it's like no commercial value. I, it, it's really important to me because there's value in being not commercial. Right. So it's like just like turning it around on its head and, and empowering yourself when somebody wants you to feel small. But also, you know, that's the thing. They're sort of speaking in some way as though they were representing what everybody wants to see. And we know that's not true because of what you well, said. Well, it's a danger when you become a tastemaker. So the funding structures in England, just a quick, quick, quick overview, is that what happens is it, it's supposed to be a place where people can find their voice, can maybe experiment because it's funded by the government, by people's money, taxpayers' money. So that's a place where actually as filmmakers, as musicians, as whoever, that, that's an experimental playground. What happens is when you know people are in their jobs for too long, they become tastemakers. Right. And that's the danger when you become a tastemaker, rather than how can I be in conversation with this artist in front of me? If this project doesn't work out, the conversation can still exist. So, and, and my problem is that they're not willing to engage in a conversation that can build a community and so that you are getting better, they're getting more informed, and that the bureaucrat and the artist, they're in it together, so. Well, first of all, No Commercial Value would have been a much better title for the show. Uh, we, we really should have gone with that. We can still do that. We can still do that. I'll talk to you about that offline. I'm like, Relevant Tones Live, No Commercial Value. That's so much better than, you know. Um, and also, I want to, you know, to, to what Doug said, you know, yeah, they, they don't want to fund it because they want to return on their investment. And that's why they said No Commercial Value. You know, they would rather fund a Transformers film or something. And I'm not saying that's wrong. Um, mm. To want to return, I happen to be a capitalist, you know, um, not a successful one, but, um, you know, but, but, but I have even regulated capitalism more or less you know like I grew up in this country and you know and money is, is cool um, but in some ways don't get me wrong but you know um, th th you have to have both I mean we used to have I, I, okay I'm just curious because I have a couple of thoughts here and I want to hear from Todd on this as well because I think you might know more than the rest of us but you know you talk about it did well in the art house circuit so you know there was a time when you were not a commercial artist you know in new york in the 1970s in the lower east side you were not a commercial composer but there was this big body of people that would support you um and there was this kind of movement and, and sometimes it broke out in big big ways like brian eno or blah 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 and i feel like that's really changing now and i you know there is still an art house circuit there is still a market for this stuff but it feels splintered and harder to reach um, Todd, you know, as, as a longtime curator and somebody that really deals with this stuff, do you agree with that? How, how do you I feel? do. I mean, I think part of it is just that, you know, for instance, Manhattan is a very expensive place to live, and it wasn't in the 1970s when downtown was an incredible, you know, cauldron of creativity and activity and exciting things, or the 80s even. 
Um, but I think part of it has to do, you're talking about you're a, you're a capitalist and part of, part of capitalism in the US is the IRS and part of what the IRS does is do this thing called a 501c3, which is a designation, I'm sure you're all familiar with it, where you, if you, I'm, my organization is a 501c3. So we can take donations and we can also offer anybody who gives us money a tax deduction on their income tax every year. So if somebody gives us $500, they get 250 back when they declare it on their income tax return. So for us, I did the magazine because I didn't want to have anything to do with advertising. I didn't want any commercial influence. And I knew the only way I could pull that off is if I could figure out a way to, to bridge that gap between what we weren't going to make from ads and what we weren't going to make from doing sort of vaguely, you know, disguised editorial that was really just paid by galleries that took out ads in the magazine. Um, and that was the way I got around it. And it actually worked relatively well, although even with, as you were saying, Julie, basically every foundation has its own agenda as well. And I had this vague, naive notion that I would, you know, not have to deal with advertisers. But of course, you have foundations, people who've been there too long, have a lot of power, and really want you to kind of craft your message to what they want to support, um, which is tricky. It's all very tricky. Yeah, there's no way to operate perfectly independently outside of you know that sphere. And, and this is where I say that this show was paid for by the New York State Council of Arts. Thank you so much. Niska. Um, <laughs> Go Niska. Your support for all of your, your taxpayer um, money, which I hope we're using. At least it's a public a, agency. A good way. It's a public agency. Um, but but you know, there's there's no way to get off of that per se. And and I, I go, going back to what we said in the beginning. I'm becoming less, as I get older, less and less sure that we need to if it aligns with our own core values, you know, and what we're doing as an artist. Um, I'm less certain that there's such a thing as selling out anymore, unless it is to, you know, be Kevin McCarthy. Um, and just, you know, like just twist in the wind and change your, 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 your mind and your values with anything that comes along. That is clearly, I hope that that definition of selling out will always last, you know, forever, because that is, I think, a really terrible thing. Okay, um, let's have some more music. And um, this is a, a piece that was, and we'll bring up the composer in a moment to talk more about it, but it was inspired by jingles, which is, I think the one thing in music I've never done is try to write a, a jingle. Um, and I, it's, a, it's a really fascinating thing. So let's bring up Will Rowe. Oh. There he is, all right. All right, this is Will Rowe. A uh, good friend of mine, and um, Access Contemporary Music commissioned this piece, gosh, like five years ago or something. Yeah, something like that. As part of our Composer Alive project, in which we invite a composer to write a piece in short installments. And we workshop the installment live, record it, let them hear it, and then they can change it. You know, we encourage them to take a lot of risks, which Will certainly did in a lot of ways. Um, because if it doesn't work, you can just change it in the next installment. So we unveiled this piece as it was being written at, at, at Les Poisson Rouge, and, I can't remember where else. Yeah, um, Cornelius Street Cafe. Uh, yeah, Cornelius Street Cafe. Yeah. Oh, oh, I love that place. <laughs> Gone for good. Anywho, um, and so tonight we're going to give the New York premiere, and the pianist Blair McMillan uh, is going to play it. It was written for him. Will, tell us about the piece. Sure. Well, as, as you mentioned, it's a piece based on jingles, uh, specifically jingles from 1950s and 60s uh, TV ads. And these are, the, uh, these are commercials that, uh, you know, 
we're lying around, uh, you know, by my, my uncle's house uh, that my mom and my uncle, you know, you know, grew up watching, you know, as they, they were kids in the 50s. And yeah, no, it was just. Uh, I'm sorry. If I recall, they kept a VHS tape of these things, right? Yes, it was. <laughs> and it was, as a matter of fact, a commercially available like compilation. It, it, it's not so, something they, they, they just recorded the VCR there. This was something that. Commercialism squared. <laughs> exactly. For sure. They really leaned into it. Um, and so, yeah, you know, that's, uh, so, you know, I kind of grew up somehow watching these same, uh, the, 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 the same TV ads that, 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 you know, my parents did, my uncle did. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it kind of formed a little bit of a nesting doll of, you know, uh, uh, familial nostalgia there in some ways. Uh, but, you do know, we, do we hear the jingles in, cause I mean, what, what we hear on the piano is so far removed from, and we'll play the jingles for you. But um, how did you transform them in the piano part? Sure. Well, you know, I essentially kind of, uh, you know, abstracted and exploded a lot of the, the the musical elements of the jingles and, you know, turned them into something, you know, so, so some music that is not as commercially viable as the original jingles here. Um, not yet. The CD, <laughs> we recorded this. Composer Live, the CD is available out there for $10. Let's do this. Let's do it. Pick it up on your way out. All right. Uh, we want to play the jingles, right? Yeah, please, if we can. Okay. We'll be playing them in uh, in uh, program order here. Follow away. Wow. Down, 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 the stomach through. Round, 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 the system too. Without Gefelter, they always say, relief is just a swallow away. You get extra points if you know the product being hawked. Ready? <laughs> Go for it. Real cream, real cream, real cream, real cream, a little dab will do ya. Real cream, you look so debonair. Real cream, the gals will pursue ya. Simply rub a little in your hair. Use Ajax, boom, boom. the foaming cleanser. Gets things clean, just like a whiz. You'll start paying the elbow tax when you start cleaning with Ajax. So use Ajax, boom, boom. the foaming cleanser. Floats the dirt right down the drain. was that one that one was maxwell house yeah you know in, in oh the, yeah it was percolating the coffee exactly yeah that sound is meant to uh yeah imitate the the, the coffee percolator and all and, all, and, and the, the all that being brewed there and so yeah that's kind of cool because they thought the music was so compelling you know that they don't even need to tell you what the product is <laughs> exactly for sure awesome all right we're gonna do it now let's uh hear blair mcmillan perform you'll hear how these four pieces these four movements are transformed in will's version commercial etudes by will Rowe.
Commercial Etudes by Will Rowe, really putting Blair through his paces there at the piano. <laughs> so many different wonderful extended techniques in that piece. Uh, just a ton of fun. And uh, you know, before the show, as I'm walking around from front of house to back of house, I heard two of the Symphony Space staffers singing the Empire Carpet theme. And I thought, man, that one is particularly pernicious. You, know, you get that in your head, you're done. You know, so um, I, I'm, I'm like focusing on Maxwell House right now. <laughs> like I prefer to have that in my head because there's no words. And I'm just walking around going, duh, 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 you know, <laughs> which isn't nearly as bad. Um, I want to say a couple things about Jacob TV if you don't know him, and, and you probably don't. He's a, a Dutch composer, um, and uh, he has made an entire career, a very successful career, out of just kind of feasting on American commercialism and Americans general, our, our fascination with self-determination, with, with the West, with our, our media circus that, that, is, that is never ending. Um, he has a, a big opera called The News that is, is uh, two or three TV talking heads that are, that are singing the news and it's just, it's overwhelming. I mean, it's just, it's alternately insane. And, and uh, you know, I, I, there, there's so much more room for, for him to explore this, this never ending territory, but um, definitely check him out because he's, he's a fascinating composer. So we're going to hear the next four movements all in a row. It's about 12 minutes. And here are those movements. Thank you.
So that is the uh, that is the second most beautiful piece in the world inspired by a hair care product. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I think it might be the first. <laughs> I'm joking. There's this other one inspired by Aquanet that is just so gorgeous. <laughs> I'm kidding. My sister used so much Aquanet in the 80s. It was unbelievable. I couldn't go into her room. Her hair is just like, I, you know. I, I actually met someone once who was named Aquanetta. Oh, really? Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Where are you? Where Not are for you? you? But <laughs> So can, can, can I ask you a question? Please. Can, can you talk about his process of what he's calling from to create these works? Uh, you know, so that's a really interesting question. You know, um, I, I don't know. I don't know Jacob that well. I've met him a few times. But um, I, I do know that, I mean, if, if he's still thinking about Moose in the middle of that music, I'd be very surprised, right? I mean, and that's a really interesting thing, too, because I know I personally one time uh, wrote, wrote a piece that was inspired by this idea of being a little bit tipsy on sake while you watch it snow, you know, and, and uh, mm. the, the critic bashed me because they were like, at the five minute mark, I don't think it still relates to sake. And I'm like, it doesn't, you know? <laughs> it's just the original impetus Literalist. of the piece. And then it takes on a life of its own and I work it out musically because music has its own logic. Right. Once you start putting no notes down, they kind of go from there, you know? So um, I, I don't know, my guess is he, he thought it was funny and you know, he wrote the rhythmic pieces, uh, rhythmic movements first and then you know, rounded it out musically because mm -hmm. it needed something beautiful, it needed th these slower movements in between. It's just to me, it's like, you know, art versus commerce, art's always gonna win. I mean, <laughs> look at the, you, has anybody seen the Ed Ruscha show in, at MoMA? No, I haven't had a chance. It's a beautiful show. It's like so deep and profound. And it's he's literally taking advertising slogans, you know, gas stations. And it's so there's so much pathos in that work. And it's its inspiration is literally a popular culture, American popular culture, consumer culture. Yeah. So. Much like Jacob TV. I, I, I just can't imagine like a million dollars, pounds, euro, whatever, touching me in the way that I heard that music, like there's just something that beauty or taking me out of the ordinary or something. I just, that's my experience. Yeah, I agree. I think that's, you know, we, we can end on, a, on an optimistic note in, in that respect. I mean, you know, my own personal opinion is as we move into a, a realm with, with AI generated content and all of this other stuff, this is what's going to become so important because we know it was written by a musician, played by musicians for people, <laughs> some of whom are musicians, <laughs> you know? I mean, so that's, you know, I, I hope that that's going to become insane with art. And, and, you know, and again, like, I mean, going to MoMA and being there, in my opinion, is, is better than seeing a video of it or, you know, having it represented for you from the comfort of your couch, um, as wonderful as my couch is, you know, so I hope that that's where we're going, that we're doubling down on actual human interaction with, with the arts. And, and commercialism is always going to be there, of course, and, and, and it's important. You have to make a living, you have to balance the, the two things. But, you know, one of the things I was thinking about was, like, um, for the last several months, I've been promoting an album of my music, and on Spotify, there is one track that is just, I mean, head and shoulders above the rest in terms of listens. I mean, no doubt about it. And I'm thinking, maybe I should just write that kind of music, you know? <laughs> I mean, I'm joking. But, you know, my next uh, project is going to be completely different. But it is interesting what people respond to emotionally, but also 
I mean, uh, putting your money out there to buy something is also an emotional response oftentimes, isn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. and, and so there's a variety of ways that people can interact with art, and, and mm -hmm. commerce is one of them. All right, well, the last piece of music we're going to hear, um, Doug, you were kind enough to arrange. Tell us about it. Well, I, I, I made an arrangement of uh, the Sex and the City theme for these Whoa. three instruments, um, which is unlike uh, Will's piece before, which was like a kaleidoscopic kind of interpretation of these jingles. This thing is pretty straightforward. Um, as you'll hear, there's a little fun, suppose, there's a little supposedly fun stuff that gets extended for a minute <laughs> at the end, but you know, you all can be the judge of that. Um, but I will say that this was the thing that allowed me, you know, as I was alluding to before, this music kind of allowed me to then, you know, spend a lot of time and focus and creativity and energy on the kind of music that I really wanted to do myself. So I'm always grateful for it. All right, give it up for our musicians. Blair McMillan on piano. Jonah Wu on violin. Eva Cassian-Lacos on cello. That's some really intense music they learned for this program. And uh, we have three exciting Relevant Tones Live programs planned for next year, uh, which I'm really excited about. I didn't have the forethought to put the dates in the program. So if you're not on our mailing list, sign up on the mailing list. It's at the table out there. Um, the themes are uh, going to be, uh, the first one is working. Um, so March of 2024 will be the 50th anniversary of Studs Terkel's great book, Working. Yeah. And so we can't get studs, but uh, we'll get some other great uh, guests and uh, talk about how work has changed. And oh, there's so much great music that we can feature with that one. 
And um, either the second or third one is going to be music and language, how they uh, relate, which they do very much, of course. And we're hoping our guest will be John McWhorter. We're going to work on that. Um, brilliant linguist uh, at Columbia University, also a member of the staff of the New York Times. Um, so that should be a really great show. And uh, a show I've been, it's been percolating in my mind for years. I've wanted to do a show called Memory Palace. Uh, there's a lot of music inspired by the concept of the Memory Palace, uh, which is essentially a memorization technique. And I just had this idea of having like a memory magician, somebody who, who you know memorizes insanely you know long amounts of things for our entertainment. <laughs> I just thought that would it'll be fun. Just throw it together and see what happens, which is kind of what we like to do with these relevant tones live shows. So do sign up for our mailing list. Look out for those. And uh, just a couple of quick closing things here. I want to thank again the New York State Council of Arts for their generous support of Relevant Tones Live here at Symphony Space. I want to thank the uh, staff at uh, Symphony Space. I want to thank our partner, Sophus Foundation, uh, for all that they do, and, and Todd Lippy here. And I want to thank our guests today, of course, Todd Lippy, Juliet Ellis, and Douglas J. Cuomo. And thank the composers, Douglas J. Cuomo, Will Rowe, and Jacob TV. Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of integrating musical creativity into everyday life. Find out more at acmusic.org. On behalf of Relevant Tones, I'm Seth Bosted. Thanks so much for listening. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks, everybody, for coming out. Hope to see you at another show. And feel free to chat with us out in the lobby afterwards. Oh, if you want to buy a CD, I'm going to head out there right now. So, you know, support art with your commerce. All right. <laughs>